Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to this latest episode of the Free Marketeers podcast. Uh, thanks for joining me on this very special episode. I'm hoping to learn a lot, and I'm sure that a lot of you will as well, because today I'm joined by Professor Robert Vivian. He is Professor of Finance and Insurance at uh, the School of Business Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand. Uh, Prof, thanks very much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Just before you start on your, uh, your presentation, uh, just for the viewers, I'm going to give you guys just a quick background. So today, Professor Vivian is going to talk to us about, uh, so he's going to provide some insights into competition and government intervention, gov uh, competition policy broadly, and understanding the very concept of competition. Uh, for a lot of you, I'm sure you're aware of competition issues in the news lately, especially around uh, with COVID-19, with excessive, so-called excessive pricing and the Competition Commission. And then an issue that's been running for a few years now is excessive data pricing. So I think, I think what the prof will give us will give us some tools into examining the narratives and the memes that are out there on competition. And prof, uh, with that, I think I will hand over to you to, uh, to lead us in there. Okay, thank you very much. What we are going to look at has just been explained. There's been a very active competition regime in South Africa for, for some time. And we want to have a look at the economic uh, theory behind competition and government intervention. And having done that, possibly we can go back and have a look at uh, some more issues. And let's look at the actual issues against the theory which we're going to discuss today and uh, in the, into the future. Now, why do we want to look at it from uh, an economic perspective as opposed to, say, a legal perspective or political economy perspective? It's because illegal uh, economic theory contributes considerably to our understanding of how and why economies work and how individuals act and behave within that economy. So the, the, the discipline that's really geared and focuses on these very issues is the economics discipline. So it makes sense to look at it from an economic perspective. Now, economic activities involve, to a large extent, exchange transactions. Uh, virtually anything, when you think about economics, is because you entered into a transaction to acquire goods or services. Now, the most common exchange is exchange for goods and services. And those goods and services are usually provided by suppliers uh, for money which is paid for by the consumer. So that's the tran economic transaction that we are looking at. We want to approach this uh, matter from personal fundamental principles. Now, these lead to all economic analysis, but the analysis itself, keep it very simple and just stick to the fundamental principles. Now, why do we want to do that? Because economic analysis can itself become very complex and we want to avoid that complexity. We want to get the same answer to where we would get, but we want to avoid the complexity of doing that. Nowadays, most exchange takes place in large markets. If you want to buy food, for example, you go to a very large supermarket, which is part of a very large chain. And all the items which you're going to buy, they're all produced by large manufacturers. So on the supplier side, we've got very large markets. And most of these markets are international markets. You buy a car or mobile phone, and you're going to buy insurance, and insurance is backed by an international reinsurance market, so on. So very large markets which supply. Now, the reason I want to emphasize this is that a lot of economic theory seems to be based that there are two individuals entering into a transaction and then automatically thinks that that's the same thing which applies for the markets we're looking at. They're not, we're not looking at the transactions which involve two individuals. We're looking at consumers purchasing things in very large markets. 
Now, economics has a great deal to say about this and has been saying about this uh, since Adam Smith's day in 1776. So obviously we're not able to go and cover everything in one lecture. So my suggestion is that we look at it in th three different parts. And as indicated, we might even have parts four, five, and six when we look at the theory and then look at current uh, events which are taking place in the light of this uh, theory. We don't want to look at what's happening in a, in a vacuum. We want to look at it against the, the theory. So part one is we're going to look at today is economic sites into competitive markets. Uh, and part two is economic sites into market failure. And third, economic sites into government intervention in private markets. This, uh, this parts one, two, and three are there for a very logical reason, because as we see, you end up with a competitive market, and then some argument will make, well, the market has failed, and therefore the government must intervene. So the logical progression is to look at the markets, look at what's meant by market failure, and then have a look at government intervention uh, in these particular markets. So part one, where we're going to start today, economic insights into competitive markets. As I indicated, and the process from fundamental concepts, which is easy to follow. So we start with the consumer. Uh, we start off and ask ourselves a very simple question, simplest of all questions. In fact, it's so simple that most economists actually forget to ask the question and don't even realize they have answered the question which they forgot to ask. And as simple as very simple. Why do consumers enter into these exchange transactions? So you go to a supermarket, somebody buys a, 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 a number of items which they put in a trolley, and I, why do they do that? Now, of course, you can find dozens of reasons, but economic theory provides an answer. In fact, of all the answers which are provided, I think economics provides the best answer there is. Now, the answer which I would give is the utility for acquiring the exchange benefit is greater than the utility of retaining the money, which is the price. So, uh, it might sound complicated, simply because the economists have used the word utility from Adam Smith's day and forms the main basis of it and uh, of economic analysis. So what do we mean by utility? In this sense, we can say the benefit or the satisfaction. Satisfaction of getting the benefit exceeds the satisfaction of retaining the price. So when somebody goes to a supermarket and takes a trolley load, why do they do that? It's because what they have acquired gives them more satisfaction than retaining the money that they had. That's a logical explanation. I must just make a point. Uh, I've used similar use quite often the word today, uh, greater than. Uh, satisfaction, happiness, things can't be measured. And that's uh, one of the problems we've got. So I can't say the satisfaction or the happiness of <clears throat> getting the benefit is greater than the happiness of the money because we can't measure happiness or satisfaction. So economists have overcome that problem by using the word preference. And so what looks like a, in, in mathematics, if you're used to it, looks like a greater than sign. You'll see it's a curved greater than, it's not a straight one, and that means the preference. So the consumer has demonstrated that he has a preference for the benefit which he gets to the preference of retaining the money. Now that complicated way of saying it is just to overcome the reality of the situation is we can't measure happiness or satisfaction, which has been a problem with economics for a very long time. We can make it a very shorthand thing. U stands for utility. So the satisfaction or the benefit is to be preferred or is preferred by the consumer to the utility of retaining the money. Now, very important point to make. This is an explanation of an observation. So economists give you 
an explanation of this very, very common uh, thing that happens with people enter into an exchange transaction. So we simply get to, that simply explains what we can we can see. It's not a theory as as such. So <clears throat> let us just say a little bit about Sorry, this Prof. concept of utility. If yes. I can jump in there, I wanted to ask, and you'll probably get to this, so I'm preempting it, but I'm guessing what you've just explained, that ties into the subjective theory of value. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, 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 uh, it's really the essence of that argument, because the economists have had, uh, going back to Adam Smith, value in exchange and value in use, and then for 200 years to argue what do they mean by value. Mm. I've tried to avoid the complexities of these arguments by, by not going down that route. So this is the second value, which is the value in use as opposed to the value in exchange. Okay. Value in exchange is the price. And then what economists have done is, is to try and put this into something they could manage. They simply say utility. But that's exactly the, the point you've made. But uh, I've tried to avoid you know, getting bogged down in the complexities. Otherwise, the audience gets lost quite quickly. Does that make sense? Yes, thanks. Uh, I no, just wanted to. Yeah, please do. Thank you. Okay, but jump in at any time if there's a, there's a problem which you have. So this idea of utility or satisfaction or happiness uh, can be very complex. So one needs to draw a line under the utility analysis. If you, if you don't draw a line under what you want to use utility, uh, then, then you can get drawn into all sorts of funny places which take a lifetime to come out of. So utility analysis can quickly slip into, for example, psychology. So for our purposes, it's, it's sufficient to accept utility explains the observable fact that the transaction takes place. Now, the point I've made was uh, made several times with many eminent economists, and the one I've taken is from Irvin Fisher in 1926. Uh, uh, in, in his thesis, this is the first page where he starts off with exactly making the point, and then he makes the point that I've just made. To fix the idea of utility, utility the economist should go no farther and is serviceable to explain the economic facts. It's not his province to build a theory of psychology. So all we need to know from utility is that's the reason why the transaction takes place. As Irvin put it, every man acts as he desires. So that's done. Now, because the consumer wishes to acquire a good or service, he is willing to exchange a sum of money for this acquisition. acquisition. So, we now can translate this happiness or satisfaction into a monetary value. Now that monetary value is what one call the willing to pay price. How much is he willing to pay? So we can try and discover this by asking the, the consumer and he'll come up with a willing to pay price as we will see. But this is not actually a price because you've got to bear in mind what is a price. The price is the figure at which the transaction takes place. And so if you if you ask the consumer, can he tell us how much he's willing to pay until he enters into a transaction, then that is not actually a price. So let us illustrate how we can do this. So let us take an example. Assume a customer wishes to fly to Cape Town from Johannesburg. How much would the consumer be willing to pay? Now, clearly, the amount that uh, is willing to pay depends on each individual, including that individual's circumstance. If the individual is very wealthy, then the price might be one thing. If he's very poor, it could be another step, uh, price. If he has to get to Cape Town urgently, there could be a different price. If he's just going for a holiday, it could be a completely different to pay. So the willing to pay decision is made without any reference to a market price. So in this example, let us assume 
but we've asked this to the consumer, and in the end, he tells us, okay, he'll be willing to pay 5,000 Rand to go to Cape Town. Whatever reason, it could be urgent, it could be whatever it is, but we've now got a figure. Now, at this point, we enter a supplier because he can't get to Cape Town unless he can find a supplier. And so he's going to go purchase an aeroplane ticket, which presumes that he can find a supplier. Assuming he finds a supplier, which accepts the 5,000 rand to transport him to Cape Town. Now, of course, the supplier is not only going to supply a single person, going to, be to take a plane load of people. So at that point, we'll get the quantity of consumers who want to take the flight. Now we can ask ourselves, we've already asked the first fundamental question, why do consumers enter into transactions? We can now go and ask the second fundamental question, why will a supplier transport the consumer? Now it's not for the same reason. It's not for the satisfaction of transporting consumers. If that were the case, the, consumer, the, the transporter would do that all day at no cost at all, because that's where he's getting satisfaction. So utility does not explain the existence of suppliers. Suppliers, provide the service for money. So it can be accepted, it is to acquire money. But to transport consumers means suppliers incur expenses in order to acquire this money. So what we to get the money they acquire, we will have to subtract the expenses. So it can be accepted suppliers into exchange transaction to make a profit, which is the price the person's willing to pay minus the expenses. Once again, this is an explanation of an observation. So we can say, we understand why consumers enter into transactions. It's because of utility or satisfaction. And we understand now why suppliers enter into transactions. That is to make money. And that money is what's called a profit because it's the difference between the price and the expenses. Now, once you've done that, you've now made a major step forward in economics because you now enter in the field of neoclassical economic assumptions. Take neoclassical economics and you say, what is neoclassic economics built on? And they'll say built on three assumptions, two of which we need to look at. One is individuals maximize their utility and firms maximize the profits. Now, what uh, would normally happen at this stage, economists will say, these are the neoclassical assumptions. Now, what we say is they are not assumptions. They are explanations of the things we have observed. Now, where does the word neoclassical come from? Well, we have to look at the history of economics, and that is before 1870, we started economics with Adam Smith in 1776, and Paul Marx, the communist, he called those classical economic economists in the classical economic period, and that name has stuck. In 1870, there was a, known as the marginal revolution, and so after 1870, economics became neoclassics. And so uh, neoclassical economics is another name for mainstream economics. So if you agree with the two assumptions that we have seen, consumers and purchasers, then congratulations, you are now a neoclassical economist. So, so we made quite a step forward. Only difference uh, prof, is that... Uh, between, uh, sorry, Prof, I was going to say, as long as uh, you don't call people neoliberals, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you're quite right. <laughs> sorry, please go ahead. I, I might add that... Uh, now, I might add that uh, the Marxists have tried to use the word neoclassical uh, as a derogatory term. So it's, it's their attempt to, to discredit it. And uh, even today, there's a lot of effort to try and get rid of the word neoclassical economists. Uh, oh, of course. Okay, so uh, the word maximize, which has been added there, that is quite important because uh, we can ask 
what are we trying to maximize? Are we trying to maximize the utility or happiness of individuals? Or the individuals going to Cape Town? Or all individuals which fly? Or all consumers collectively? Or society as a whole? Now, whichever one you think you're trying to answer opens the door to another very complex sort of analysis, which is where we are not going to go. But just bear that in mind because it becomes quite important in competition theory as we go along. Whose happiness are we trying to, to maximize? Okay, now let's put this on a diagram so it's easy to see. And there's a diagram. There's a diagram with no competition at all. Uh, where's our consumer? He's willing to pay 5,000 Rand. He's going to be taken down to Cape Town. And uh, let us assume we said that uh, uh, in order to make the money, uh, the supplier has got to incur expenses, so assuming the expenses equal to 1,800 Rand. And therefore, the difference, which is the money that he wants to make, which is referred to as profit, is 3,200. And uh, the markup is quite substantial, 1.77 times or 177.78% markup. Fantastic to do that money-making machine to get that, that right. Okay, so, so far this is all going quite well because what happens is we have no competition. So let's talk a little bit about the supplier who's providing this. The supplier does not know the cost of the, the consumer does not know the cost of the service. That's the supplier's expense. Now it's quite important because quite a lot of economic analysis, uh, they get confused and they start thinking that the consumer wants to make a decision based on the supplier's expense. The consumer doesn't know what those expenses are. The consumer only knows uh, one thing, he wants to go to Cape Town and how much he's willing to pay. The consumer does not make a decision to purchase tickets based on the supplier's cost. He doesn't know those. Once the 5,000 rand is paid, then that would become the price. As I've said, the price is not how much you think it is, the price is the figure at which the transaction takes place. The supplier, on the other hand, knows the price, and has a good idea of what his expenses are. We hope he knows exactly what the expenses are, but he has a good idea of what is. And therefore, based on this, the supplier can determine the profit, which the supplier can achieve from the transaction. If the supplier needs to know that, because that's the reason why he's entering into that uh, transaction. Now, if the, if the expenses are very accurately known, and if they are very knowable, then the supplier faces no risk at all. So you can say, I know what my expenses are going to be. I will transport you to Cape Town and know exactly what the profit's going to be. Now, in theory, that's a problem. If the supplier faces absolutely no risk, why does the supplier make a profit? Since it's usually accepted that the profit's supposed to be the reward for risk. So if there's no risk at all, then uh, why would he make any profit at all? Now, that's important when you get to competition, uh, because that's what drives competition, uh, profits down in a competitive market. Now, one answer which was given by Frank Knight in 1900, there's always a degree of uncertainty and the profit is the pricing for the uncertainty. So we can make a distinction between risk and uncertainty. So a profit of 3,000 rand per consumer per trip at a cost of 1,008 markup. Very profitable business under these particular circumstances. But that doesn't hold for long because now we get competition. So now we get a second supplier which is now on the right of the drive called Q2, which the quantity has now gone up. Now you can see exactly the same situation. We have a willing to bear market. <coughs> he's got his 5,000 rand, he's gonna make 3,200 rand profit. Expenses 1,100 Now another supplier, and there's no risk involved. Another supplier comes and says, I'm actually quite happy to do the same thing for 800 rand. 
No, you'll notice there's something else which has happened over here. You'll see the expenses are slightly lower. And that's quite important in the theory of economics because uh, it explains something which is happening. Competition now enters into the market. The market price goes down. In this case, we say 2,500. Consumer supplier is still very happy and his expenses are down. So what is, what is the implication of that? Consumer now is a price which he or she is able to either accept or reject. Willing to pay price is now, in fact, totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter how much he's willing to pay. All the willing to pay meant he's going to pay more than the market price, and therefore he will enter into the transaction. Also, you should note, which is not always understood, the price is set by the market, not by negotiation or the consumer. Yeah, great, mind, great arguments in the minds of some people because consumers negotiate the price. In fact, the consumers have something to do with the price. In fact, not at all. If the oil supplier tries to get the price that the market is willing to bear, the supplier will go out of business because no customer is going to go to him. They can get it at uh, half price from another supplier. So why would they go to him? So he's out of business under these things. So the old willing to pay, willing to bear supplier would have to set its price, bearing the other supplier's price in mind. So now you can see what happens in a competitive market. The market is not set by the price, and the market is not set by the figure that the, that the supplier would like to make the profit, but it's set by the price in other, other, other suppliers in the market. Eventually, a market price emerges, which may or may not be a single price, but a narrow range of prices. In order to make a profit, suppliers have to control costs and therefore E decreases. Very important point. Because when people think of competitive markets, they always think that there will be no monopoly profits. Uh, there's more impact it has, the competitive market has on expenses than what it has on profits. As the price decreases, quantity of goods are sold increases from the law of supply and demand. And in the end, the competitive market results that there is zero profits to be made, zero economic profits to be made. So yes. Frank Knight pointed out over a hundred years ago, profits tend to be eliminated in competitive markets under those things. Let's just talk a little bit now about the market price, which is quite important. Market price cannot be worked out or calculated. In fact, no price can be worked out or, or calculated. Price is what people pay. So you can work out what you like until the transaction takes place, and that's not the price. The price is what people pay, and therefore it is an observed figure. It is observed price. Now, it is established via the market process, which does so via the existence of undefined number of unobservable variables, all integrated into the price via the market mechanisms. One of the most complex things in the world to arrive at that price. And although on the face of it, when you go and buy something at a price, you think it's really simple, Behind that price is billions of rands and billions of man hours to be able to give you the product at a price which the supplier will eventually decide to put onto the market. And resources are allocated via the price mechanism. There is no, no other known process which can arrive at the market price which more efficiently allocates resources. Think of this for a minute. You take our consumer who's going to go to Cape Town, only for as long as he needs it, he has got a seat on a plane which will be carrying him down to Cape Town. When he gets down to Cape Town, he can hire a car which will be allocated to him only for as long as he needs it. Uh, and when he gets to the hotel, he hands 
uh, is a room allocated to him, which he will only use for as long as he needs it. And each of those suppliers are battling to make out a profit. And in order to provide that, they've reduced their cost to the bare minimum which they can get. So resources are allocated by the price system in a mechanism unequal to any other known system. So to emphasize again, there is no known other process which can arrive at the market price other than the market itself, which can more efficiently allocate the resources. Okay, so let us get back to our original diagram because what we want to end up with is asking ourselves what are the outcomes which a competitive market can produce. So there's our original diagram. We had a price where a person was willing to pay and there was a certain quantity, Q1, which is associated with that. That price is never the price which actually is the thing is transacted at because the market price is much lower at a greater quantity and that's the price which goes through. Now that little yellow triangle is known as Alfred Marshall's consumer surplus triangle. Alfred Marshall argued that every consumer is given a, a surplus of utility, a surplus of satisfaction because the market reduces the price and expenses to the lowest possible. And so the first outcome which you can get from a competitive market is the maximum consumer surplus, which is, comes from Alfred Marshall. That brings us to what we want to achieve. What are the outcomes of the market? We have now got the first of that one. A competitive market, it provides consumers with a maximum consumer surplus. The difference between a consumer would be willing to pay. He never has to pay that price. He gets it always cheaper and very efficiently through the market at a lower price. Now, now, you may say, I can't get my mind around a thing called consumer surplus. So what is the consequence of a minimum, a maximum consumer surplus or a minimum price? Competitive markets eliminate monopoly profits and competitive markets lower the cost of production and allocate resources efficiently. So that's the first outcome of a competitive market. That one was fairly easy. The second one is a little bit more abstract, but we can make it less abstract by looking at a practical example. The second outcome is that a competitive market is called Pareto Optimal. Now you could say, well, why do we want to look at something as abstract and, and not continue along the route which we want to do? Say, so let's just look at this from really simple and fundamental principles. This was the statement at the end of the slide. To many economists, Pareto optimality is the gold standard of a competitive market. So if we don't understand Pareto optimality, we can't understand economic theory of competition. Now, what is Pareto optimality? You can take from various uh, writers, Arrow, uh, Kenneth Arrow, Nobel Prize winner. He says a market is at Pareto optimal when no allocation of resources will take place which will make all participants better off. Now, it's very important for reasons uh, which we, uh, we come to, which all participants, it ties back to the question which I asked, who are we trying to make happy in the market, the individual consumer, some consumers, or is it uh, the whole of society? So how you answer that question depends on how you, what you're going to interpret or to be. Now, again, that you might find that rather complicated. So let me give you my version of it, very simple. No one in the market is prejudiced by others being in the market. And you might say to you, what, where would you ever get a market? If somebody buys something in the market, the person buys something is being prejudiced. Uh, if you understand how that can happen, 
yeah, then you'll understand Pareto optimality. Now, first of all, it cannot happen in a competitive market. And that's why economists uh, uh, like the Pareto optimality because to them it's the gold standard. If you have a market where there is no uh, prejudice in the market, then you have a competitive market, which is Pareto optimal. So, can we get such a market where somebody's prejudiced? We have one in South Africa, so I will uh, explain that to you. That market is not a market under competition. It's a market which the government has intervened, and so government intervention has created a non-Pareto optimal market. So, let's have a look at that particular market. Let's have a look at the South African medical uh, schemes market. As you know, in the medical schemes market, a medical scheme cannot price based on, on risk factors, so it cannot based on age. It can charge everybody exactly the same. Now, the, the reality of the situation is if you took the expenses of people over 65 and you took the average cost per consumer and then compared it to the expenses of, of, of children between one and working age, one and 18, then uh, various studies. Uh, would indicate that the average cost of people over 65 is about 10 times the cost of uh, younger people. So if we now said, okay, we would like to have a market for medical uh, schemes, medical insurance for different consumers uh, in a competitive market, the market would price each one according to the, risk, the expenses. So there would be a market for the elderly and there'd be a market for the younger. And so in the elderly market over 65, they'll all be paying the price, and uh, which is equivalent to the expenses. And in the younger market, everybody will be paying the price for their own expenses. So in this market, which is really two markets, a market for the elder and a market for the younger, nobody is prejudiced at all. And so this market is Pareto optimal. But that's not what happens in South Africa. Government intervened and said, no, everybody in the market gets paid the same price. So what happens in that market? So here we are. Exactly the same, except in the middle there, we are going to have, uh, have what happens to the younger market. Now they have to pay an average price, which is the line in the middle over there. So the lower line would be the young people. The green line would be the profit that they would have paid uh, or the, uh, to, to the administrators to provide the service. And then the blue line over there is the additional amount which they have to pay uh, in order to subsidize the, the persons over 60. So you can see they are in a worse off position, or putting it the way I've put it, they are prejudiced by being in this market because of the existence of people over 65 in the market. Now they're prejudiced to the extent of about nine times or six or seven times of the original cost. So they're paying six or seven times what they would need to. Now that's a Pareto non-optimal market. So in economics competition, it's a competitive market, which is acting at its optimal level, it would be Pareto optimal. Medical scheme, government created market or statutory created is a non-Pareto optimal market because people in the market have to subsidize other people in the market. That subsidy, incidentally, I've given a special name, uh, which we don't need to go into. You can, you can see that being equivalent to a sales tax. Every time a young person pays their premium, there's a massive sales tax of about 900%, which has now been collected and redistributed to, to the elderly. And that sales tax I've called the Mashikani tax, which you've got. You can't get this in a competitive market. It's not an outcome 
of a competitive market. A competitive market is Pareto optimal and nobody subsidizes anybody else because to subsidize somebody else, the person would be worse off. If that happened, another supplier would simply appear and price the risk correctly under those. So we've got two outcomes. Other outcomes follow quite logically from what we've already said. That's uh, outcomes three, four, and five. So outcome three is optimum resource allocation. The competitive market, as we've already illustrated, reduces the costs. And in order to reduce the cost, it will optimally resource, optimally reallocate the sources over there. Expenses are at the lowest possible level. Resources are used and distributed optimally. Outcome number four, maximum innovation. We owe that to, to Joseph Schumpeter. Every time a consumer, I told you, when we look at products that come to the market at a price, behind it is billions of rands of investigation and hundreds of thousands of people working. Because what the suppliers are doing, they understand that unless they can provide the most innovative product, they're going to lose the market. And so they have got teams of people working on ways of producing better in efficiency in production, and trying to find product substitutions, to improve the products and create new products. So behind the product which you get, because of the competitive market, you have the fourth outcome, maximum innovation, which takes place. Now the fifth one we have uh, already looked at, uh, in, in a sense, which is, uh, 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 you need to understand a little bit of the history of the competition, called maximum total economic welfare. Now that's usually split into two different old and new. And uh, it started off with the old new, which came from Pareto, uh, from, from PIGA and uh, developed later on to Pareto. We've already looked at Pareto optimality. Uh, we can split that and say maximum total economic welfare and Pareto optimality. So, when we're finished, when we have a competitive market, what do we get? Five things. Maximum consumer surplus, maximum innovation, optimum resource allocation, maximum total economic welfare, and Pareto optimality. No other market other than a competitive market can produce that, and no other system known to man can produce that. It cannot be done in any other method. And all of that is, is uh, synchronized and uh, coordinated through what Adam Smith called the invisible hand. So it's the most efficient way of allocating resources, which is known to man. Now, I just need to make one, uh, one point on this, because if you really want to get involved into economics of competition, then you run into a different concept, which I think is not very helpful at all. Unfortunately, it's one which has a great deal of influence, and that is the idea that somehow there is a thing called a perfect competition. So, a lot of economic theory is bedeviled by this concept of uh, perfect competition. Uh, now economic analysis is usually complex and often unhelpful. Analysis should concentrate on explaining the economic world as it is, not as you can imagine. Now, if you start thinking about perfect competition, there's nothing perfect in the world, so it can't exist. And so it's not the world as it is, but it's a world which one would think may one day exist. Unfortunately, the theory of perfect competition con concentrates on structure and not on outcome. What we've said, there are five outcomes of a competitive market. What we should see is whether those outcomes are present. The perfect competition market looks at structure. So, so do we have a 
an unnecessary market concentration. So is the market still competitive? Is it still an efficient market? Nobody looks at that. So the analysis should first concentrate on outcomes and structure is not an outcome. So it's really just a warning that if you get involved in economics of competition, don't get sidetracked by discussion on perfect competition. Concentrate on the outcomes. Are the outcomes of a competitive market present or not present? So we can now come to a conclusion which is uh, quite important. Now this conclusion I'll take from Paul Samuelson, Nobel laureate, uh, from his doctoral thesis which was published in, in a book in 1947 and uh, the point he makes is, is valid. Why do we even worry about competition? Well, why not uh, look at something else? Because from at least the time of Adam Smith, so from the very beginning of the theory of economics, there's always, uh, there's never been absent from the main body of economic literature, the feeling that somehow competition represents the optimum outcome. So if you want to get the optimum outcome, then you automatically end up being concerned with competition theory. So to look at economics without looking at markets and without looking at competition is to not to look at economics in a useful type of, of sense. Uh, we need to look at it in that way. The optimum market is also sometimes called the efficient market. So sometimes you say it's efficient, where efficient market has more than one unit meaning. So what have we done up to this point? To this point, we've now understood that we can have competitive markets. We've seen how they arise, and much more importantly, we've seen the outcome that are produced. Now, if you understood all of what I've said up to this point, you'll say then, then we should certainly never interfere with the market because the market produces the best of the world. So why do we interfere? Now, that's what we have to look at the next lecture. The argument is that uh, we all agree, it's uh, Marxist, non-Marxist, that the efficient market is the ideal situation, but they still argue it doesn't always achieve it. And when it doesn't achieve it, then the government should intervene. So when is the government, when is the market not achieving what it's supposed to be achieved? And economists will say, when there is market failure. So when there's market failure, then what we should do is get government intervention. So to get to the point where we want to get government intervention, we have to go via the idea of market failure. So the second part of this series look at the issue of market failure. And when we've done market failure, we can then get to look at government intervention and all the decisions and conclusions we can make about government intervention. Then as I've indicated, when we've done all of that, we can continue and look at some of the current events or events which have taken place and analyze and discuss those events against the economics of competition. Thanks a lot.